Well, Bethany, I wondered if you could start by helping us think about the relationship that China has with Russia and really take us back in time before this invasion, maybe back before even Russia started its activity in Crimea. How were those two countries viewing one another and how has that evolved? I can take you back even further. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsu Politics. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us here at Pantsu Politics, where we try to take a different approach to the news today. We're going to talk about the historic confirmation hearings underway for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, President Biden's nominee to replace Justice Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. Then we're going to turn our focus back to Ukraine, but a little different angle. We're going to share our conversation with Bethany Allen Abrahamian from Axios about China and how the Chinese Communist Party fits into our understanding of the war in Ukraine. Finally... With the Oscars coming, Sarah, one of your favorite times of year. It's my favorite time of year. It's not March Madness. (laughs) And at listener Lizzie's request, we're going to talk about Best Picture nominee Don't Look Up and its messaging. But first, we're really excited about our book. Sarah, you want to tell them where we are? Yes. Now What is launching in less than six weeks. These last few weeks before launch are so important to the success of our book, and we need your help. First, if you haven't pre-ordered the book yet, it would mean so much to us if you would do that through your favorite book retailer. You can find a link to do that in our show notes. And second, once you pre-order the book, we would love for you to join our launch team. This is an exclusive group. We'll be popping in from time to time over there, doing some Facebook Lives with this group. You get to read the book early. You help us spread the word about the book. You help us successfully launch the book, hence why it's called a launch team. There is also a link to sign up for the launch team in our show notes. So any help you can give, greatly appreciated. My friend Jen is so good at saying that she's going to be my hype person, and I feel like the launch team is like our hype people. That's right. Many of you have asked what you can do to help, so here it is. Thank you so much. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. 
we are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Before we talk about a historic nominee to the Supreme Court, we need to commemorate the life of another woman who made history. On Wednesday, Madeleine Albright died at the age of 84. She was the first woman to serve as Secretary of State. She was nominated by President Clinton, first to serve as representative to the U.N. and then to lead the State Department. And that made her at the time the highest ranking woman in the history of American government. And her personal backstory is so touching, Sarah. I wondered what all stood out to you about her career and her life story. Yeah, her history is amazing. Her parents were Czech refugees. They fled the Nazis. They raised her as a Roman Catholic during World War II to protect all of them. So her early childhood and just my favorite anecdote about Madeleine Albright is the way she would use her pens to communicate like her mood or strategy. Apparently it all started when Saddam Hussein called her a serpent. And so she started wearing a serpent pin. <laughs> and then she was like, well, this is fun. Maybe I could do this for lots of things. Like, I just think it's such a like clever, but also fun way to, I guess, like flip on its head. The idea that everybody's probably watching what the first secretary, female secretary of state is wearing anyway. And so why not use it to your advantage? Why not make it fun for you as well? I just think it's, And it's reflective, it seems like, you know, because sometimes it was communicating like, do not mess with me today, which she had a real vibe like that, which I also appreciated. You know, she was just brilliant and such a history maker and incredible, incredible diplomat and thinker on the world stage. and, And she will be missed for sure. I keep her book, Fascism, A Warning, on the shelf behind me where I work every day. And I wanted to share this paragraph from the preface, which I think she wrote in 2018, because I felt like, one, it was highly relevant to everything we're talking about today. And two, because it it feels representative to me of how incisive and direct and thoughtful she was. According to an old Czech saying, it's no trick to make soup from a fish, but making a fish out of soup is a challenge. In the chapters to come, I argue that ambitious, often arrogant leaders are intentionally undermining the institutions and democratic principles that have held the world together through much of my life. Without offering anything real or better, 
They ask us to abandon the ideals of international cooperation, political pluralism, civil discourse, critical thinking, and truth. The longer these false prophets have their way, the more damage they will wreak and the more difficult it will be to heal the wounds they are opening. The trend is worldwide and among those most directly affected are Americans. It's mighty prescient. Madeline Albright will be missed. But from one historic commemoration to another, President Biden has nominated Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer as an associate justice on the Supreme Court. And it seemed like a good time to talk more about her. We've only briefly touched on this nomination, but there is a lot to say because she has a resume really similar to what we're used to in Supreme Court justices, but also brings a variety of new and fresh perspectives, many of which have been kind of spelled out for us in in really beautiful ways during her testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah, she's only 51 years old, another young justice joining the court. Her parents were public school administrators, so she's one of the few justices that went to public school. The rest went to Catholic school. She also, fun trivia fact, went to the same high school as Jeff Bezos, which I thought was fascinating. She has a very elite resume as far as her college and law school education. She went to Harvard for undergrad, Harvard for law school. She was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. Uh, She's worked in private practice as well as clerking for federal judges, including Justice Breyer. So she has a very elite resume. She does. And in addition to that, her life story is compelling. You know, she talked about her dad going to law school and him having a stack of law books on the table next to her stack of coloring books. She has an uncle who served as Miami's police chief. She has another uncle who was sentenced to life in prison in Florida for a nonviolent drug offense. That sentence was commuted by President Obama. Um, So just lots of life experience. And some of that is coming up in these hearings in terms of her time as a public defender, in terms of her experience on the bench and how she sentenced criminal defendants. I think the salient thing to note about particularly the Republican questioning of her in these hearings is that biography is not the issue. Everyone Mm -hmm. understands that she is qualified to serve on the court, well qualified. In fact, I think as we're recording, there are experts from the American Bar Association and otherwise testifying about how well qualified she is to serve on the court. And so having nothing biographical to go after, having nothing in her qualifications to go after, uh, there is a real attempt to narrow in on specific moments in her career to make policy points, to score political points. But as citizens, I think we should feel comforted that this isn't like a food fight over her personal integrity or her academic pedigree. Instead, it is just a food fight because we have decided that's what we do in committee hearings. Yeah, it's not an accident, though, that she can't forcefully and aggressively defend herself against these very spurious, like, teeny tiny piecemeal. Well, let me pull out this one thing. From several years ago, or this one thing, or this one piece of this decision, or this sentence. You said this at this sentencing hearing. Like, she just sits there calmly, taking, you know, deep measured breaths and responding very, very carefully, often quoting Justice Amy Coney Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh and their answers at their confirmation hearings. I thought that was a very interesting approach that she's taken and very smart approach. I I did want to ask you, Beth, I think the one thing she said that sort of got my attention was when she, when asked about sort of 
her guidelines around interpreting constitutional law, she said, well, this court has made clear that we interpret the Constitution basically in an originalist way. We look at what the people who wrote it meant and what the the limitations of that time period. I don't think many people, I certainly didn't expect her to say that. And I couldn't tell if she was just saying, like, that's what they do. That's what this court has decided is the approach. Or if she was just, like, describing it or saying, like, well, because that's the way they do it, that's why we all do it. I think it was Senator Sass who asked her what Supreme Court justice she models herself after, and she declined to answer that and said that she follows her own compass. So I hate to do to her what she declined to do herself, but I'm going to do that for a second and say that that answer and many of her answers reminded me of Justice Kagan, Mm. where you have this kind of long-term strategy in mind about protecting the institution, about making sure that you are absolutely consistent in the way that you approach answering questions like this and then approach taking cases on. Because Justice Kagan, you can see, is in for fierce protection of precedent. Mm -hmm. And she's like in for a penny and a pound, as my grandmother would have said. And I think that you we got some indication that a Justice Jackson might follow that path. I think her temperament in these hearings also feels very Kagan-esque to me, um, that she is doing her best to show a real respect for everyone in the process, a real understanding that she would be a Supreme Court justice, not just for sort of the progressive left, but for everyone. If you read Justice Kagan's opinions, I think that that's really the approach she tries to take, too. She really holds her cards close. Her legal analysis is very sharp. What I have read of Judge Jackson's opinions as a circuit and district judge indicate that to me as well. So I I find that encouraging. And, you know, as much as we've spent on the ways in which she is similar to the current Supreme Court justices and pedigree, it is important to point that there are ways that she is very dissimilar. Obviously, she is a historic nominee because she would be the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. And... Very importantly, the first public defender. And that's why this was an easy opening to talk about criminal defense, Democrats being soft on crime. But, you know, it is it is sort of equally depressing to me that she is the first black woman and the first public defender, because those are just massive, important perspectives to American life that have been missing from the court until this moment. The fact that we would have a Supreme Court for hundreds of years that wouldn't have the perspective of defendants, people who are you know, tasked with defending those at the mercy of our criminal justice system is just incredible. And in the same way, you know, the fact that we've never had a black woman on the Supreme Court to bring that incredibly important perspective, it's not an accident to me that we're having so many conversations about the future of the court, the integrity of the court. And we're just now, you know, basically just beginning to plug these massive holes in the ship, right? No wonder the ship is sinking because it's been missing these very important perspectives. I was talking to my 11-year-old daughter about this, and I asked her if she knew what a public defender was. She did not. So we talked about the Miranda warning that she has seen in movie after movie. And here's what that part where you have a, a right to an attorney and one will be provided if you can't afford it means. And I said, what you should know as somebody trying to figure out would she be a good Supreme Court justice or not is that public defenders take so many cases 
They go to court more than almost anybody. They try so many cases. They actually get experience that if you work at a big law firm, you only dream of, you know, because those cases settle. They get tied up in discovery forever. Public defense is where the action happens. And it's a huge variety of cases and a huge swath of the public that you interact with. And what I think is really encouraging and hopeful about her as a Supreme Court justice, about anyone with this experience as a Supreme Court justice, but especially her, is that we want people to sit on the court who would represent a detainee at Guantanamo Bay because they are so committed to the rights enumerated in the Constitution. They are so committed to the idea that everyone coming up against the government deserves to be treated by the government in a way that honors those rights. I talked about a Supreme Court case, a recent decision on More to Say this week, that involved a Guantanamo Bay detainee, and it just became so clear to me thinking about him. Here is a person who has done terrible things, and it's awful when you have a person who's done terrible things. But when you have a government that does terrible things, that is more significant socially. And so to have somebody sit on the court who has said, I will stand up against the government doing terrible things, even to a terrible person. I really appreciate that. So we hope that Judge Jackson will be confirmed quickly and that we can all celebrate that new level of representation on the Supreme Court. We're going to turn our attention now to Ukraine. There was a piece from David French this week. I feel like we have mentioned itis about David French. He just Mm. keeps coming up in our conversations. But he's really written some excellent pieces lately. And he talked about how American attention on Ukraine is waning and what a danger that is for the Ukrainian people. So we don't want to contribute to that problem. We want to sustain our focus, even though it is difficult. And we want to try to understand different angles. So today you're going to hear a conversation with Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, the China reporter at Axios. Bethany writes, high impact investigations, exclusives and analysis about China with a focus on how China projects power and influence beyond its own borders. And we really appreciated her insights. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. 
They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Well, Bethany, I wondered if you could start by helping us think about the relationship that China has with Russia and really take us back in time before this invasion, maybe back before even Russia started its activity in Crimea. How were those two countries viewing one another and how has that evolved? I can take you back even further. Uh, I can take you back to the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949. So for the first, you know, 15, 20 years, uh, after the founding of the People's Republic, meaning after the Chinese Communist Party took over, China had a very, very close relationship with the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union sent scientists, sent um, assistants, was really China's big brother. Very, very close relationship there. And China was very reliant on the Soviet Union, especially in the early years before China mm. had diplomatic recognition from a lot of other countries. But then, uh, I believe it was in the late 60s, around there, there was something called the Sino-Soviet split. And I won't really get into the reasons for that. Uh, it was somewhat ideological and other stuff, but um, basically it is what it sounds like. China and Russia had a big diplomatic split. And so for a couple decades, uh, you know, relations between them were not close. And, and that, that's actually one of the things that played into the U.S. eventually recognizing China because they saw this as a strategic opening to kind of, you know, pull apart the, uh, the communist bloc a little bit. And we get Nixon's visit to China. And that was sort of the strategy there. That's right. That's right. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and another complicating factor in their relationship that that lasted well beyond the fall of the Soviet Union was um, some territorial disputes. Uh, China and Russia share a very very long border and have numerous 
small uh, territorial disputes that caused some minor skirmishes uh, over the years, I think even into the 90s. But by the 2000s, um, China and Russia had finally resolved those. Territorial disputes between two countries serve as a real irritant in relations, and it's often hard for two countries to have a to build a really strong relationship and build really strong trust when they have that kind of ongoing friction on their border. Uh, so, by clearing up those territorial disputes and resolving them, that set the stage for Moscow and Beijing to start building, to start really going somewhere with with their relationship, and that also approximately coincided with. China's gradual turn uh, towards a, a more hardline authoritarianism. We can trace that to around 2008, but really in 2012 when Xi Jinping became general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. And you know, 2012, uh, important year for that, 2014 uh, with, the, with Russia's annexation of Crimea, that was a very important event in the Russia-China relationship because Putin uh, relied on China at that time because uh, there were some initial Western sanctions on Russia. And that was when the mood, you know, the towards the mood towards Russia, the perspective on Russia in the West really started to change. It was a, a pretty shocking event. Um, I, I remember in 2014 seeing the word annex, you know, annexation appearing in headlines. And I was like, I haven't seen that. Like, this feels like World War II to me, yeah. you know, when the things in Europe get annexed. Um, and so that, that pushed Russia closer to China. Um, and that, uh, that, that sort of closer relationship is something that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have really worked towards and built in the past eight years. Their personal relationship is very strong and very close. I can't remember the exact number of bilateral visits they've had with each other in recent years. It's like, you know, up in the double digits, 14 or something like that. It's, it's not for show. They really get each other. There's a certain authoritarian learning curve that they share where they're learning from each other. Uh, Russia is learning from China's crackdown on the internet. China is learning from Russia's use of online disinformation operations. Mm. They're both, and, and the thing that really ties them rather than, than actual shared values, for example, or specific shared strategic interests is that they're both opposed to the US led liberal world order to, to the extent that it exists, or you know, even though it's it's not perfect, but it that exists, um, and they they don't want it to, or they want it to be greatly weakened. They both share that goal, and they both are very useful to each other in providing uh, posing parallel challenges to Europe and to the West. So that brings us through this this warming, right? And we come, we come to the opening of the Olympics, and we have the No Limits Partnership, and you know, in the the context of that close relationship. I also have to believe that China probably felt like the rest of the world, like this was going to go a lot more like Crimea and less like a full-scale invasion that led to this alliance of the West. And so I wonder now how Xi Jinping feels about that relationship. I wonder if, you know, there's so much analysis that talks about how China values stability, but Russia doesn't, if he's seen the sort of um, inherent weaknesses in this relationship? I mean, I think you're exactly right that uh, China's top leadership um, and 
frankly, Russia's top leadership probably did not anticipate mm-hmm. how uh, fierce the um, pushback in Ukraine would be, how fierce the resistance would be, and how strong and unified the response of the West would be. My guess is that uh, you know China's top leadership thought that this would be more like you know the annexation of Crimea, um, that we would see a similar pattern little bit of fighting, kind of a little bit of on, you know, ongoing low level unrest resulting from that, you know, the US and Europe being kind of displeased and slapping a few symbolic sanctions yep. and, but not doing much more, but this was just such a fundamentally different reaction. So I think that, you know, uh, I don't, I, I don't really love it when I hear people say China's in a tough position because no, they could just not support a dictator. You know, they're, they're putting themselves in that position. Um, you know, but but they, I think they they definitely want to have their cake and eat it too, and that is a very you know fine needle that they're having to thread by doing that. They do not want Russia to collapse. They don't want Putin to um, you know be pushed out of the leadership because that would leave China as the sole you know major national security threat and strategic threat to to the U.S. and Europe which would, you know, unify their West ability to push back against China. Um, China finds the, you know, Putin very useful. But they also, you know, realize that that they, uh, they don't want to alienate Europe. Up until the past couple of years, China has managed to keep Europe, to, to convince them that all China wants is a nice trade relationship, mm. that they're not a threat that they don't need to be pushed back against. And Europe in the past couple of years has started to kind of wake up to the kind of major challenge that China does actually pose to to values and to the liberal order. But they're certainly far behind the U.S. in that realization. And China would like to keep them that way. Uh, China has encouraged, has publicly encouraged Europe to pursue strategic autonomy, which is the idea that Europe should pursue a foreign policy that's separate from the U.S. So Xi Jinping wants both of those things. You know, he wants to have a good relationship with Europe and he wants Russia to continue to be strong. That is what he cares about. He does not care about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. The the Chinese Communist Party doesn't actually really care about what happens to Ukraine. It doesn't really care about the suffering of the Ukrainian people or about the loss of, you know, chunks of of Ukraine, um, the loss of their sovereign territory. And in fact, there have been a number of, you know, people speculating about how much China is learning about this, you know, vis-a-vis Taiwan. I wouldn't overdo that comparison, but I certainly don't think it's bad for for China, for how it views its future, for there to be a precedent of, you know, a revanchist, revisionist, authoritarian power taking a chunk of territory that it views as rightfully its own. That would not be harmful to China's, you know, goals for itself. That's the reason for, you know, what appears to be a kind of uh, waffling on China's part or a kind of strategic ambiguity. Mm, That's interesting. You anticipated my question because I'm going to think about the phrase authoritarian learning curve for a while. And we keep hearing, you know, China is watching as it relates to Taiwan. We don't really hear a lot of like the people of Taiwan are watching. Do you think there is a learning on that side of the equation vis-a-vis Ukraine? 
Oh, absolutely. I'm in close touch with, uh, you know, a lot, quite a number of people in Taiwan who are very concerned about that, you know, Taiwan's future. And they are most definitely watching the world's response to Ukraine. They're watching Beijing's response to Ukraine and they're watching the, the Ukrainian response to Ukraine. How are Ukrainian people pleading their case on the global stage? Mm-hmm. How are, is the Ukrainian government fighting Russian disinformation? To what extent has the West um, stood up for Ukraine and, and where have they not? And, you know, one place where they haven't is, uh, for example, in creating a no-fly zone over, over Ukraine, which is what Ukrainians really want. So that's, you know, one thing the West hasn't done, but there has been a very strong unified economic response. You know, some of this is, is as I said, the comparison is a bit limited because China's economy is 10 times the size of Russia's. And Russia is already the, the largest economy, you know, to ever be shut out of the global economy in this way through these kinds of sanctions. It's not possible to do that to China. It's just not possible. And it's just as it's not possible to do it to the U.S. Uh, you know, we invaded Iraq and nobody wanted us to do that. And we did not suffer crushing sanctions because right. it's not possible. So, you know, in Taiwan's case, there will not be, it's extremely unlikely there would be such a strong and unified economic response. And, and Taiwanese, you know, people know that. I'm struck by when you say, you know, we talk about this and you say they, the communist, the Chinese Communist Party. We don't use they a lot when we talk about Russia because Vladimir Putin is so, so isolated. And they, you know, the reporting is that it's gotten worse through COVID. You know, I was struck. I was listening to an expert and they said, like, we know what happens if Xi Jinping passes away. Like, we understand the process and how the replacement will come about. We don't have that in Russia. We don't know what happens if something happens to Vladimir Putin. And so that tells me, like, there's there's influence, there's elites, there's a wider sort of conversation surrounding him than there is Vladimir Putin. And I'm wondering what what they're taking in, what the conversation is there. I, I read some reporting that there's been a lot of attention, particularly in the lead up to the invasion, when there was so much public disclosure of intelligence um, and intelligence penetration inside Russian circles. I'm sure the Chinese were watching that, wondering how much, how deep does that go inside our circles? I agree with you that that's not possible in China, but I do think under a certain global pressure, you could see private corporations leaving China. I wonder if they're watching that. Do you have a sense of how sort of the elites inside the Chinese Communist Party and inside the Chinese economy are are thinking or influencing Xi Jinping, especially as he heads into a pretty unprecedented third term? That's a that's a great question. And, you know, now we're getting into the territory of like Beijing palace intrigue, you know, elite power politics in China, um, which is a very fascinating topic, totally different from Western power politics, to be sure. Um, You know, the thing to understand about about China is that it's a Leninist system, which means that it's, you know, a top down, very heavily bureaucratic party control with very strong inner party discipline. And the the system that emerged after um, the Cultural Revolution when Mao Zedong was in power, which was an extreme cult of the personality where one man had an enormous amount of power and wreaked havoc because of that, because there was no one powerful enough to check him. The system that emerged after that was something called, I guess, a a rule by consensus or, you know, kind of a a consensus-based leadership where there was a strong, um, there was strong discouragement for there to be a single, you know, to have cult of the personality again. Um, and there was, so the, the Politburo Standing Committee, which is, I think, nine people, um, a small number of people, uh, 
that's, you know, that is the real power base. And while there's a general secretary, uh, you know, it was a, kind of a, a rule by, by consensus of those, those top leaders without a lot of visibility into the, um, the debates and the arguments that they're having. What has happened under Xi Jinping is that he has kind of shredded that. Mm. So there is a real cult of a personality now in China, very much centered around Xi Jinping. And he has, you know, his his power consolidation means that he really is calling the shots. He has he has um, marginalized and felled, um, you know, any sense of opposition within the party um, to to his power. In terms of elites, you know, are there people? Is there is there are there groups in China, you know, powerful elites who um, inform what he does? That's probably, I mean, he has advisors, uh, but he has been, you know, very uh, intent on making sure that no one can force him to do something that he doesn't doesn't want to do. Mm. And this is, there's a real risk here. He's gone so far with it. And this is, you know, this is why things happen so badly under, under Chairman Mao in the 1960s and 70s, is that people can't give him better advice. Right. So they can't really push back against him. And there's a really good example of this that kind of emerged actually over the weekend. We we hear very little now about inner inner party debates on these on these major issues. However, there was an article that was published in Chinese with an English translation on a on a U.S. based website, small you know U.S. based website over the weekend by someone named Hu Wei, who is um, a top research advisor to China's state state council, which is the highest government governing body, not the party governing body. And he made a very, very strong, I mean, really striking criticism of China's policy regarding Ukraine. Now, he didn't use the name Xi Jinping, but China's policy regarding Ukraine is Xi Jinping's policy regarding Ukraine. And he said, here's what's going to happen. If we do not join with the West in their opposition to Russia, you know, we are going to be isolated. We're going to anger everyone. And there's going to be a united bloc against us. We cannot do this. Also, Russia's losing. There's no way for them to win. We don't want to be on the losing side here. That's really unusual. That is a very, that it is really, really rare to hear that kind of criticism. This is speculation, but my guess is that he took this risk publishing this because he feels so desperate Mm -hmm. about it because he wanted to get some attention because no one is listening to him. And I don't know what's going to happen to him, but you can get a sense there of that sort of inner party uh, silence, really. Wow. I was struck reading about that article in your newsletter this morning, Bethany, and how you said, here's what to watch for, what happens to this person. And, And that leads me to ask you about the way that China uses information. I feel as an American, especially in the midst of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, like an unwilling student in a long seminar about what disinformation really looks like. And I think we're getting a better sense here in the United States of what it looks like for a government to put propaganda out into the stream uh, in well-disguised ways. I still don't think we have any sense of what the censorship side of this, what China does really well, looks like and what it means. Can you put that in some context for us? And and maybe if you're willing, even share, I think you've had some personal experience with this um, as well. I would love to hear about that. So China's done you know, the thing that people thought was impossible, that President Clinton said would be like nailing jello to the wall which is censoring the internet truly truly 
blocking out, stamping out opinions that a government doesn't like. And China has become extremely good at that, extremely successful at that. And they've institutionalized that throughout uh, their not just their law, but also inside of private corporations. And as a result of that, you know, propaganda and censorship are, are kind of a, a one-two punch for controlling public opinion. And I always try to tell people that the reason governments like China pour literally billions and billions of dollars is because it works. It works. And in China, around the Ukraine issue, for example, what we've seen is very intense censorship of pro-Ukraine opinions, even, even facts, like just basic facts that cast uh, the Russian invading army in a negative light. So you know, lots of um, censorship of, you know, information about maternity hospitals being bombed, you know, or children's hospitals being bombed, this kind of thing. And on top of that, an enormous wave of pro-Russia information being amplified by Chinese state media and, you know, online influence uh, and Chinese government officials. So the Chinese internet and the entire Chinese information ecosystem, if you were just awash in it and not really trying to figure out what's really going on, it will, it will appear to you as though um, the U.S. and NATO have been provocateurs. The Russian army is trying to free Ukraine from Nazis and is exhibiting remarkable restraint. It's trying to help Ukrainians, etc. And that's what you will really believe. Why are they doing that? Why on this? Why are they doing that on this particular case? And it, there's a really important concept here to understand, which is that the Chinese government does not want to face domestic pressure to change their policy. So, if Chinese people were to realize or to understand the you know the enormous civilian cost to just normal people, normal families in Ukraine, and to understand that this was truly an actual invasion, that it's a war, and that it was unprovoked. Chinese people are human beings just like the rest of us. They would get extremely upset and that would put pressure on, on Xi Jinping to change his policy, which would restrain his ability to make choices on the international stage. And he doesn't want that. Mm. So that's the point in this case of that kind of pressure. Now, the, the question information, the Chinese government does use disinformation domestically, um, although we've tended to call that more like propaganda. So like, you know, TV uh, airings of forced confessions, for example. Mm. Um, this information is something that the Russian government has really perfected. And I, I think, you know, some, some analysis of that would be um, because it's more useful in an environment where you have fewer controls. So if you're trying to project your beliefs or what you want people to believe beyond your borders, you can't really do so as well. But disinformation is transnational. And in, in Russia's case, now, now in the past two weeks, they have really shut down their online space and censored a lot of things. But before that, it wasn't a free environment, but people could get information pretty freely if they wanted to. And so disinformation was more useful to Russia, you know, even domestically, because they didn't have that kind of control. I don't know if that answers your question that I wanted to, uh, about, about disinformation. No, I think that's really helpful. I was struck with an interview with Stephen Kotkin in The New Yorker about how he was talking about authoritarian governments. And he said that they're all powerful but brittle at the same time. The information gets worse. The sycophants get greater. And they don't they can't correct in the same way that we can. And I wonder, as you look at the Chinese Communist Party, 
Where do you see that brittleness? Where do you see that weakness in the structure? I I have heard that argument many times. Or I guess I I should say, do you agree with it? (laughs) I I only think it's true sometimes. Mm. And I think there's a big risk to applying it to all autocratic regimes. And that risk is it presumes that at some point in time soon, that government will collapse right. and you don't even need to do anything. It'll just, it'll just collapse in on itself. And you know, that was one of the West's biggest strategic mistake when it came to China mm-hmm. was expecting that democracy would inherently win out and that authoritarianism would inherently fall. Right. And I don't know if that's true. I don't, I don't know if that's true. And I think it's important to presume that it's not true. On the question of brittleness, I do think that there comes a point where, you know, as in China during the Cultural Revolution, dissent, even loyal dissent, was so marginalized that, you know, basic governing decisions were being made very poorly, you know, about the starvation happening in the provinces that they governed, you know, so there was just a lack of knowledge. That kind of thing is brittleness, absolutely. But, you know, before that point, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and I, I think there's, it's possible for there to be an overlay of brittleness and an overlay of resiliency. And mm. I would say that's much more ac- closer to what we're seeing in China. And I'll, I'll give some examples of that. He, here's a actually very, very specific example of, of what I would call a type of brittleness. So recently, or last year, I think the Chinese government issued an interesting um, guideline prohibiting hackers, white hat hackers, from selling vulnerabilities online but rather they're required to hand them over to the government so the government can use them for strategic purposes. Okay. Well, that's great from the government's perspective. They can, you know, now they can hack into more people. However, what's the problem? Well, this is actually a problem of, of capitalism and free markets. So white hat hackers are in part motivated to find vulnerabilities because they can get a lot of money for them by selling them, you know, selling a zero day vulnerability gets, can, can get you a lot. A reward. It gets you a reward from from that company, right? You report it to them and they reward you for it, um, to be clear. And the Chinese government is not doing that. So it has removed a market incentive. And as a result of that, one can very reasonably presume, you know, with uh, as an informed presumption, that now fewer vulnerabilities are being found mm. because hackers are not incentivized to find them as much. And that makes everyone, all the com- you know, companies in China less secure. Now that's a tiny, tiny little, you know, pinpoint in a, in a much larger landscape of of how some processes are weakened or stop functioning in a society where there's too much top-down control and too much repression. That's certainly the case in China. However, if you can have an effective bureaucracy, you know, authoritarianism can, can respond very quickly to crises and can uh, cut through some of the um, slower processes that can bog down democracies. And if anything, in the past 10 years, the Chinese Communist Party has become a much more efficient governing mm. bureaucracy. I do not see that brittleness. Thinking about authoritarianism in the details is a, is a helpful framework. And I think that your newsletter is such a helpful way for us to all continue to do that. Those of us who don't have the kind of history and context that you provide about China, being able to check in regularly with those detailed examples has aided me tremendously in just trying to understand what's going on in the world. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today and always uh, through your newsletter at Axios. Thank you so much for having me again. 
Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you so much to Bethany for joining us, Sarah. We're going to turn to, as you said, your March Madness, the Oscars, and particularly talk about Don't Look Up. Yes, lots of lots of lots of people emailed us and said, what do you think about Don't Look Up? I don't think it's going to win Best Picture, so let's just go ahead and 
clear that right away. That's it is nominated and it's, you know, it's very reflective of writing and directing of Adam McKay. I think he's the writer and the director, um, you know, who did Vice and The Big Short. He's by, he's the production behind Succession. And if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen Don't Look Up, it's everybody's in it. All the stars. Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, Leonardo DiCaprio, Timothy. I love him. I love him so much. Uh, Kate Blanchett, Ariana Grande, Jonah Hill. And it's about scientists discovering that there's a comet that's going to hit the planet. And they're trying to get, you know, the White House and the media and every everyday people to take it seriously and pay attention and try to do something. I, I mean, I feel like the movie's been out long enough that we can spoil the ending. But what is your stance on that? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. So the, the it ends up hitting Earth. There's some stuff after that that's pretty funny that, you know, plays out after the comet hits Earth. But it's a very it's a very political perspective. Adam McKay, you know, it says, like, it's about climate change. He is, like, he's a Bernie bro. He's very progressive. He has a very intense political perspective. And it comes out in the movie, for sure. It feels to me like another iteration of idiocracy. Mm, Just this sense that, like, we are too stupid as a people, as a collective, in America at least. We are too stupid and too decadent and too spoiled and entitled to care about anything real. And so when the scientists surface this comet, everybody first blows it off, and then they see a political opportunity to make it like a wedge issue. And so the title of the movie, Don't Look Up, is like this movement where people are actually saying, just don't look at the sky. <laughs> like, it's it's that. It is not a subtle movie, is what I'm telling yeah. you. I do think there were parts of it that I liked. I liked, I mean, I didn't dislike the movie at all, necessarily. I don't think... I, I think there's a little more nuance than I was ready to give him credit for. I like the scenes where there, you were always watching people from around the world watch what was happening and just sort of like be sort of victims or powerless or just swept up. Just like the reminder that like this is bigger. I liked, you know, that one of the scientists sort of gets swept up into it at some point. I thought that was like a clever statement. I thought the, you know... The betrayals of the president and the White House and the sort of tech sector were a little overwrought. And, you know, I watched it and I thought (sighs) that he has a perspective that some people are stupid. I didn't feel like the point was everyone was stupid and doesn't want doesn't care and doesn't want to pay attention. I might be giving him more credit than Adam McKay more credit than he deserves at this point, but with regards to just the perspective of this movie, I but I didn't leave them. I don't. I don't know. I guess my question is like, I don't know what he wants. How he wants us to leave the movie? Are we supposed to leave the movie empowered? Because that's not how I felt. And it feels like you know everybody who works in climate science, like they kind of rail about this. Like all is not lost, and people who push that perspective are damaging the climate movement. I think Adam McKay is very invested in the climate movement and doesn't want that. So I'm kind of like, how did you think people were going to leave this movie? Like, empowered to go join, you know, the Sunrise Movement? Like, I don't, I don't, that's kind of my question. Is like, what what were you trying to do here besides make a movie about how terrible our sort of reaction to global warming and climate change is? I share a lot of that perspective. I thought that Leonardo DiCaprio was fabulous in this movie. 
I really liked seeing him go from behind the scenes nerdy scientist to celebrity and the realizations he had about himself along the way and the lack of self-awareness for a while and, and kind of how he evolved. I thought Jennifer Lawrence was good. I mean, I always like Jennifer Lawrence, but I, I liked showing that someone who takes it really seriously just can't do media because we mm. want media to have this chipper, upbeat, packageable hook, and we ultimately want to leave everything feeling good. Um, so I thought that was a, a smart way to approach her character. But it's like, how do you make that point when you're making a movie like this? Isn't there some irony there that you're arguing that mass media only cares about a positive spin and you've made a absolutely mass media movie on Netflix with every star imaginable about how the world's going to end? Like, I don't that's where I'm, that's again. That's my question. Yeah. And I've seen people describe it as a dark comedy. I didn't think it was funny. I didn't think it was empowering, as you said. I didn't think it opened any doors. Yeah. I didn't have a new understanding of someone because of watching it. I definitely don't think someone who is already disposed to think climate change folks are alarmist are going to change their opinion after watching this movie because it is made with such disdain for people yeah. who don't take climate change seriously. So to me, it just the doors that are closed in that debate were slammed shut in this movie. Not that it's his responsibility to open doors, but again, I, I agree with you. I don't know what the point is. Yeah, because if you're going to make a movie with a like very distinctive political perspective, then I'm assuming you want it to do something except for just make you feel better about how shitty people are about climate change. Like, I don't know. That's what. I, and I read a Vanity Fair profile of Adam McKay. First of all, did you know that he is six foot four? Mm-mm. It's a tall dude. Who knew? And... In particular, I was interested in the breakdown of his partnership with Will Ferrell. Partnership and friendship. They are no longer speaking. And I thought that that, that was interesting. And he kind of talks about, like, The Big Short was—and The Big Short is fantastic. It is. I love The Big Short. The Big Short does such a good job of, like, having a distinctly political perspective, but also educating and feeling like, okay, I get this. Like, you feel more empowered around the subject of, like, financial markets when the time the movie is over. And you got to look at Ryan Gosling the whole time. So that is a win-win. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, he talks about, like, people thought Vice was way too heavy-handed and unfair. I think Don't Look Up is more popular than Vice. And, listen, he got nominated for Oscars for both of them. But I kind of wish he would go back towards the Don't Look Up. Not because I think media has to have this positive perspective. But I think, you know, criticism, especially in the form of satire— you know, I, for, I forgot who, maybe this was a Malcolm Gladwell podcast, but somebody did a really great, or maybe it was This American Life, I don't remember, a long time ago did a really great podcast episode about like satire is, it's a delicate business. Because if you're not careful, and this happens, I think, a lot with Saturday Night Live, you just give both sides something to feel superior about without being very clear that like, no, no, I have a, I have a perspective here. Satire, making people laugh in order to get them to think is a delicate business. It's hard to do. It's hard to do well. And it's certainly hard to do if you have a outcome in mind for how you want people to to feel at the end. I'm not sure Adam McKay had. And if he did, I, I definitely don't know what it was. But I just think if you're going to make a movie that's so distinctly political, you might want to think about that. I thought Vice was exceptionally heavy handed. 
but still provocative. Like, I thought the exploration of executive power in Vice and that idea of a unitary executive gave me a lot to think about, even though I didn't think it was funny because it was so heavy-handed. And I think about Succession and how he has a real disdain for these characters, but there is tenderness built into, like, he still sees them as human. And I just thought Don't Look Up was was maybe too influenced by the pandemic. This idea that yeah that people are so ready to fight with each other that we are completely disconnected from our own self-interest to the point of being disconnected from our own interest in survival. And while that is in some ways understandable and perhaps correct, it doesn't help. Yeah. And I I guess I'm just I'm maybe maybe some of it is Post the intense days of March 2020, I am not in the mood to look around and decide that everyone is terrible. I want to figure out what we do about that. Yeah. And, I, you know, I don't I don't think it's correct. And I think it's intellectually lazy. That's probably I think you're right. I think with Vice, at least he was asking interesting questions. I, I'm very confident he is not involved in succession at the level that he is involved in these movies. He does. I don't think he writes episodes. I'm not sure he directs very many. I just think he was, it's his production company. But Something that's a, like you can feel the difference, right? Like there's not a lot of Adam McKay presence there. It's like it's interesting in his breakup with Will Ferrell. Like Will Ferrell's name on it, but he has nothing to do with that show because of the way their production company was ran. And, you know, I just when I read his profile, and this is true of a lot of art, like I read it and thought, OK, well, now that I understand where you were in your life and what you were struggling with, this movie makes a lot more sense. It did not make a lot of sense as a commentary on either ch- climate change or the pandemic. But you working out like some of your stuff from Vice and what you feel like was unfair criticism of Vice and perhaps like some of the breakdown in your, you know, not the breakdown, but like the shifting direction of your career. Well, now that makes a lot more sense. Right. And that, you know, that's often true when you know the background of where people are coming from. And this is all just me reading. I don't know Adam McKay from Adam. <laughs> um, and I don't, I didn't, you know, I just read one celebrity profile of him, but I just think the movie, it wasn't, not entertaining, I guess. It's just, when something's like that high of a production level, it's going to be entertaining no matter what, right? When you have Meryl Streep on screen and Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, like it's not going to be bad. I was sad that so many people watched it and felt like, yep, that's how it is. Cause that is not the, that is not the experience I had. I didn't watch it and go, yep, we're the worst. Human beings are terrible. And we all know it after the pandemic and climate change. That's not the reaction I had to the movie. I thought, well, I see where you're coming from. I disagree. I also don't feel despairing about climate change. I feel like we are in an era where there is much greater acceptance. I understand there's not the urgency that everyone would like to see, but private industry is moving on climate change. The world is moving on climate change. This administration is moving on climate change. You don't hear a lot of Republicans walking around disclaiming climate change anymore. I just think we are moving in a much more solutions-oriented direction on climate change. And so it was hard for me to watch in that way, too. I, I I don't think we're refusing to look up anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, what we struggle with here, too, is there's no one they. Like, who are you even yeah, talking about? Right? right? Like, that's that. I think that's what bugs me is this idea of, like, every, you know— and the movie is more nuanced. He does not imply that everyone reacts the sa- exactly the same way. And the, that parts of the movie where he, I wish he'd done more of that. Like, this is how people would 
in this place would react. And this is how people and because that's the truth of climate change. Right. Some people are going to be massively effective. Everyone's going to be affected, but it's going to play out differently. And the way people this is what we learned in the pandemic. Right. Everybody doesn't react to a stressful global event in the same way. To me, that's an interesting question that I would have been interested in a deeper exploration of, like, why do we all react so differently when all of our lives are on the line, as opposed to we all react the worst when our lives are on the line, which is definitely sort of what parts of the movie felt like. Well, I am certain that many of you have feelings about this. Every time we talk about a film or a TV show, Mm -hmm. we hear a broader spectrum of opinion than on most any other topic. So we will look forward to hearing uh, your thoughts on this movie as well as everything else we discussed in today's episode. We have really good stuff coming for you next week that we're excited to share and talk about, including five things you need to know about electric vehicles. Between now and then, please do not forget to pre-order Now What? How to Move Forward when we're divided about basically everything. That's the thing. We're in a moving forward kind of space around here. And we would love for you to pre-order and join our lunch team. Thank you so much for being here. Have the best weekend available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Hessians! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. There we go. Sorry. How nice to have a, a dog. Yeah, she's my executive producer. She doesn't work very hard. Doesn't <laughs> mm, contribute a lot, but she's here. Americans work too hard. Yeah. All right, let me start over.